This is Update One, the podcast of the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Update One provides a forum for listeners to learn about national and international stories, focusing on journalism and communication issues, news and politics. Now, the latest edition of Update One. I'm Adam Cano, and joining me today is American University School of Communications professor and history affiliate professor, Leonard Steinhorn. He has published numerous books and articles on politics, race, and other issues of our time. He currently serves as a political analyst for CBS Radio News and has also worked as a political consultant and speechwriter. Welcome to Update One. Hey, happy to be here. You cautioned Americans to take Donald Trump seriously well before his surprise 2016 win. What was it back then that you observed that so accurately telegraphed his later rise to power? Well, I think what we see with him is he's a once in a generation politician, somebody who has the intuition of a strategist, the ability to identify who his constituents are how to reach them, how to reach them emotionally on issues they care about, how to speak to them in a language that resonates with who they are, what they want to be, and what they want this country to be. Um, So Donald Trump four years ago had a few advantages that he didn't have right now. One, he was a master communicator. Look, this was a reality TV host who understood how to keep an audience, hold an audience, hold their attention, but also how to create optics that built an image that ultimately he was able to project onto his candidacy. Plus, he was known as a builder, as a successful business person, and therefore Americans who may not have liked all of the things that he actually said, who took him very literally, may have pushed that aside because they felt that he was somebody who was an outsider but had experience with the economy, who could come in, build the country, be a task-oriented problem solver that he projected himself to be on The Apprentice and in all of his other public relations that he had been doing for decades. So I think that was an advantage he had back then because a lot of voters projected certain qualities onto him, imagining that that's who he would be as president. I want to push on that a little more because, I mean, it is ironic that a self-proclaimed billionaire was able to effectively be seen as a credible voice for struggling Americans, whether they were former coal miners in Appalachia or, or somewhere else, um, and that a lot of promises were made, you know, and I think of that one in particular, that, you know, perhaps were never really realistic. Well, let's also qualify one of the things you said for struggling white Americans, because that was the constituency that he appealed to. Some mythic Uh, appreciation of the 1950s and how wonderful that may have been for many white Americans who saw the post-World War II era and were able to get good manufacturing jobs in unions and have a good living and sort of see their American dream come true. And that's sort of the iconic image of America that he tried to represent through his candidacy by appealing to people and saying, let's make America great again. He also did something that I don't think people fully understood its power, which is to wear that baseball cap, that Make America Great Again baseball cap. Um, And what does a baseball cap do? You could be a billionaire with gilded toilets, but you put on that baseball cap 
and you are really one of the crowd in a tavern or a local diner where you see people all over the country wearing those caps. Simply through that symbolism, he showed a connection with the American people that he wanted to reach and that he wanted to uh, have identified with him. What he also did is this is a cohort, this is a constituency that feels aggrieved, that feels that certain educated folks or certain so-called coastal elites, whether realistic or not, they feel that these so-called coastal elites look down on them, condescend to them. And Donald Trump wanted to empower them. And through Donald Trump, they did feel power. And every time the media or intellectuals or academics or anybody else criticized Donald Trump for the things that he was saying, they felt that they were criticizing them as well. Donald Trump was able to fuse his candidacy with that group of white voters throughout America and make them feel that any comment against, that, against him was a comment against them. So in essence, what he did is he ran an anti-establishment populist campaign, fusing his identity with theirs in a magical way, because once again, this is somebody who lived in an apartment building and lived the life in limousines of a billionaire and basically said, nope, it's those elites who are out to get me, and I understand that they're out to get you. Therefore, vote for me because I will empower you. Or as he said at his 2016 convention, I am your voice. Yeah. And as he went from the candidate to president, from a communications perspective, was there a difference as that campaign became an administration? Or really, was it that same construct over the past four years? I think if suburbanites who voted for him back in 2016 imagined him as president, they did not imagine that he would continue his campaign rhetoric, his campaign persona into the White House. They didn't think he would go after opponents the way he does, demonize people who have even the smallest disagreements with him, make everything personal and about him. They imagined him being a business person and building America through the qualities that many people associate with business people. So I think the very fact that he began to hemorrhage those suburban supporters in 2018, who really began migrating from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party as part of the suburban realignment, was because he carried through his campaign into his administration and took on the temperament and character of somebody who's constantly fighting his opponents and dividing the country to be able to maximize the enthusiasm of his base rather than uniting the country and putting things together. When you're president of the United States and you come off as a bully and you come off as somebody who seems intolerant of the great diversity of this country, that's going to turn off a lot of voters who teach their children that bullying isn't good and that diversity is good. So in essence, Donald Trump maximized the power of his base, but he didn't seem to be able to go beyond that. And even though he brought out many voters in 2020 who didn't vote in 2016, but who were consistent with the demographic of white, non-college educated voter, he also brought out people on the other side who went out simply because they were repulsed by his temperament and character as president and wanted to vote against him 
And that's why his base strategy got him close, but wasn't enough to put him over the top. Fair to say just for the moment that the count is is still ongoing as we record this podcast, but it certainly seems like former Vice President Biden has the upper hand. One of the things that certainly hasn't changed from President Trump's first campaign through his administration and into the second campaign was this unveiled animosity for the media. What do you think the lesson is for journalists, whether they're political reporters or, or on any other beat? Well, you know, for journalists, the lesson really is keep doing your job because as a journalist, you are there to uncover facts and speak truth. There's that old saying that uh, you afflict the comfortable and you comfort the afflicted. But even more important, I think journalism has emerged uh, in the Trump era, not merely as a mirror of what's out there, because it's not always reporting both sides if both sides aren't adhering to the truth equally. Journalism is no longer the mirror that it may once have been because people at least were telling the truth based on how they're interpreting the evidence. Journalism right now is a lamp, and it's a lamp that sheds light on the realities of our politics and society and culture, on the mistruths, the mistruths of any politician. And what they're basically doing is holding a lamp up to every politician and saying, A, we are going to hold you responsible for telling the truth, for not lying, for not disseminating propaganda and disinformation and misinformation, and for leveling with the American people. If you do that, we will report everything that you say fairly, but if you don't, we will evaluate it in a way that sets it up against a standard of truth and evidence, and that's what we will hold you to. So I think in many ways, journalism has understood its responsibility as a lamp and not just a mirror in the Donald Trump era and has been doing its job and doing it effectively. And you know what? Every administration has been angry with the media. If you go back to the George H.W. Bush administration, it was, you know, support the president, you know, anger the media or whatever those bumper stickers were like. Barack Obama wasn't happy with the media. Bill Clinton wasn't happy with the media. George W. Bush wasn't happy with the media. But they accepted the media as a fundamental pillar of our democracy as protected by the First Amendment of the Constitution. And I do think that journalism has stood firm against the broadsides and attacks by the president as journalism being an enemy of the people because they are confident in their role in a democracy. And I think they really have played that responsibly. I will say this though about journalism in the campaign. They paid way too much attention to the polls and they respected the polls as a form of social science and allowed the polls to drive much of the narrative in the campaign. So I think journalists have to be far more critical of people who, let's say, call themselves social scientists, pollsters, the same way that they apply that critical lens to politicians who may say one thing or do another or who may offer incomplete or inaccurate or untruthful information. You mentioned the polls, and obviously, you know, the polls were wrong four years ago. Pollsters seem to, at the time, have taken that to heart and, you know, made every indication that they had adjusted for underreporting of Trump voters in this cycle. And yet, here we are. And that mythical uh, 10 point lead that uh, Vice President Biden had certainly didn't look like 10 points on election night. 
And it's funny because I never accepted those polls. I was one to tell my class to talk on radio that this is going to be a very close election. What I do is I look at what the strategists in these campaigns are doing. These are very smart people. They know their business quite well. And then I reverse engineer their strategy to see where they're going, which states they're going, what types of voters they're appealing to, and what they're trying to accomplish. And I do think that it would be to the benefit of pollsters to do exactly what I'm doing. Understand what the strategists are doing, see where they see opportunities and openings, and then adjust their likely voter model to accommodate who's campaigning where, how they're doing it, and where they see that may, they may be able to win. Joe Biden didn't really travel to Florida much, and that should have given everyone an indication that Joe Biden probably didn't have as much of a chance in Florida as the polls seem to suggest. But the Biden campaign did begin to put some footprints in Georgia, and that should have suggested to a lot of people that Joe Biden might be able to do pretty well in Georgia. So you follow what these strategists are doing because they are the top of their game, and then you reverse engineer it and then apply that to the likely mo voter model in the polls, and I think you will have far more accurate polling in the future. But pollsters, what they do is they base their likely voter model on previous elections, and then they make a couple of corrections based on what they did wrong, but they are in some ways fighting the last war and not looking at what's in front of them today. And I think that was a big mistake. The polling industry has to do a lot of soul searching right now, and journalists have to do a lot of soul searching as to how much they can trust those polls, and media organizations have to do soul searching about the amount of money they pour into polls without really understanding what those polls are measuring. Yeah, we've talked a lot about President Trump, but I, I, I do wanna talk a little bit about former Vice President Biden and what you saw other than obviously he was running this time as the head of the ticket and not in support of Barack Obama, but how did he evolve as a candidate? Well, look, Joe Biden is the same Joe Biden we've seen for many, many years. Um, this is the Joe Biden who has a personal story of adversity and family suffering. He was an open book to the American people. And I think it's that Joe Biden that has gotten him this far that was really reflected in his candidacy, who he is, what his values are, that sense of him being sort of a regular guy who took the Amtrak train every weekend to make sure he was with his family when his Senate dues were done. So Joe Biden, the persona, I think was very important. And an advantage she had over Hillary Clinton is that I think Americans trusted him more. They didn't think he was an elitist. They didn't think he felt he was entitled because of that personal biography that he had. And it made it much more difficult for Donald Trump to attack him and to stick him with any number of accusations that the president tried to do uh, throughout this campaign, which of course led to the president's impeachment earlier this year. But Joe Biden also understood that he had to straddle all sides of the Democratic Party to create this coalition that he needed to bring his campaign over the top. And I think he effectively did that by messaging about the soul of the nation, because everyone wants to have a country that is not just a great country, but a good country as well. And I think that was the underlying core of Joe Biden's message, which is we can be great America, but we also have to be good. 
And that speaks to progressives because progressives, good means enacting policies that will really empower and reach more people and give them more of an opportunity to fulfill and reach their American dream. And to moderates, being a good country means ending this divisiveness and ending sort of the irrational tweets in the middle of the night that accuse people and attack the press and go after courts and judges and anybody who disagrees with you, they wanted a different character in the White House. And to them, that was what good was. So speaking about the soul of the nation, talking about policies that reached across the whole democratic spectrum, he was able to put together a coalition of people who wanted a more progressive government on one side, but also wanted to sort of kick out the current inhabitant of the Oval Office because of their concerns over character. And he was able to bring out all of those new voters who were repelled by President Trump and may not have been progressives or liberals, but wanted to restore a sense of decorum and character to the Oval Office. So Joe Biden actually ran a very good campaign in that way. If he made any mistake, it was not realizing the power of getting boots on the ground and having field offices and organizing to be able to bring people out to vote. He could have probably enhanced his margin if he had done that, but he wanted to say, I respect the American people with social distancing. I'm not going to invade your space. And therefore, my campaign is going to pull back on my appearances and my get out the vote operation because I want to be able to be somebody you can trust in a period of a pandemic to live by my word and not to violate your public health. Did you see that down ballot as well? When if you look at some of the House races, the Senate, even the governor's mansions, was there that same sense of search for balance and decorum, or were people sometimes voting more tactically, you know, maybe for Biden, but for their Republican member of Congress? Well, down ballot, I think the Republicans had one advantage in that the president, with his massive turnout operation, was able to boost the numbers, which is what got him to his approximate 48% of the popular vote nationwide. But then there were all those moderates and Republicans who may have hemorrhaged from the Trump presidency and voted for Joe Biden, but then returned home to the Republican Party and may have voted a little bit more Republican than what the Democrats were hoping for. So Joe Biden was successful in making sure that those sort of moderate Republicans turned out for him, but then they went home to the Republican Party, and that's why you saw see some gains with the GOP in the House of Representatives, some gains, or at least maintaining their current strength in state legislatures, and not enough gains for the Democrats to be able to capture the Senate. The problem with the Joe Biden strategy of not getting people on the ground and organizing is that it may not have brought out as many of the Democratic base that would have voted for the Democratic side of the column. The one place where that did happen was in Georgia, where Stacey Abrams and a lot of other grassroots organizers from 2018 exerted their strength. And that's why Georgia seems to be one of the most surprising states out there, because they actually did their groundwork getting people out to vote. But it wasn't replicated nationwide. And I think that's the one area where the Biden campaign fell short and that created a bit of an opening for the Republicans to hold on to the Senate, which arguably they may do, and to cut the Democratic margin in the House of Representatives, 
and to keep any number of state legislatures and state houses that the Democrats had hoped to flip. I want to ask you a couple more questions about your your role as a political analyst. But before we do that, the disruption that we've seen in the rise of Donald Trump is not just found in politics. It's increasingly prevalent in industry, too. As a as a public relations professor, what do you see and what is the lesson to, to communicators, not just about learning from Donald Trump, but also others like, you know, Elon Musk, for example, who is, you know, a disruptive force in his own right? Well, I think one of the most important things anyone can communicate is that sense of authenticity. This is one of the biggest stories from this election that hasn't been talked about a lot. This next generation coming through is really the most progressive generation around. They tend to vote liberal. They're inclusive in spirit and in practice. They see diversity as a fundamental moral value and any form of discrimination or bigotry they are repulsed by it. And even conservative Republican young people feel that way as well. So this is a different generation coming through. And what they will resonate with is that sense of authenticity. So they couldn't go all the way for Donald Trump because of where he stood and the general intolerance and nativism that he expressed. But they like that authenticity. They like that sense of defiance of norms. And so they will ask businesses to not go with the old practices, but to basically show who they are as a company and instill those practices of inclusion and diversity into their sort of corporate culture. But they have an eye when those companies are just giving lip service to that and not acting in an authentic way. So I think that's an important lesson for businesses via Donald Trump but also via this election is that younger people, younger consumers, they want that authenticity, but they also want that inclusivity in how they see companies doing their corporate practices. So I think that's a big lesson. Authenticity is big. The desire to not necessarily to follow the old patterns, but to try things that are new, that's important. But again, if I'm looking in a corporate office to how I have to operate in the coming years, I need to be able to drill down deep into this new generation, see what they're thinking, how they're thinking it, what's important to them, because they are the future. You're a longtime political analyst for CBS Radio News, and I know you have to do a hit with them in a couple minutes. So two questions real quick. First, what does that actually entail, being an analyst for CBS Radio News? So basically what it entails is waking up every morning to a water cannon of news, trying to process it, make sense of it, and then keeping that water cannon flowing throughout the day as I digest each new breaking moment, and especially in the age of Trump, where there's never a dull moment, and you could be surprised and shocked by anything he says, and then you have to process it and make sense of it. So it's constantly being on with the news, seeing what's breaking, what people are saying, what people are doing, and understanding how that fits into the larger context of our political culture and history. Another thing you have to be able to do is think quickly, because you have to be seeing a debate or monitoring election turnout or or votes, and you have to be able to understand what the evidence is before you and figure out how to make sense of it and to tell a story to listeners. So you have to think quick. You have to process the information. You have to understand how to develop your story as you are seeing something unfold in real time. 
but you have to be good at it because you have to drill down into the information. For example, on election night, everyone was talking, wow, Donald Trump is building up these big leads. What does that mean? Could this be another Trump surprise like 2016? What I did is I went into the weeds and I started looking at Pennsylvania and Arizona and Nevada and Georgia and Michigan and Wisconsin and looking at where there were places that there were a large number of votes that weren't reported and then projecting out from those communities into what it may look like in the days ahead. And so what I did say on air, for example, is don't trust the narrative of the moment that may change based on who's voting. We have to be responsible and not just report the tabulation, but the numbers that may emerge based on the patterns of voting and voting behavior. So you have to do that. And one other thing you have to do, you have to understand our history and culture. Politics is not detached from who we are as a people, who we were as a people, and how the past informs the present and the future. If you don't understand that and have a deep and rich knowledge of American history and culture, you're not going to be able to add much value to political analysis because you're just then crunching some numbers and going with breaking news and not putting it in the context of the American people and who we are and what is important to us. Yeah. And just real, real quickly, the, the role of media, both traditional and new media in that equation. Well, media is flooding our zone every single day. And what we have to do is to resist the seduction of an alert, resist the seduction of a notification and step back and manage the information that comes to us so that we're not just jumping from one bit of news from one media source to another. We have to be able to maintain our critical distance, our critical thinking, and we have to give ourselves the space to evaluate this information because in the long run, you know, as you and I both know, our founders didn't invent our system to be based merely on the consent of the governed. They founded it to be based on the informed consent of the governed. So what we have to do is not allow all of these media platforms to manage us what we have to do is manage them. Professor Steinhorn, thank you so much. Hey, thanks so much, Adam. Leonard Steinhorn is professor of American University and a political analyst for CBS Radio News. He is a colleague of mine in the Public Communications Division at AU School of Communication. For Update One, I'm Adam Cano. Update One is a production of the National Press Club's Broadcast Podcast Committee. You can comment on this podcast or any episode of Update One by sending an email to Update One Podcast. That's Update, the number one podcast, at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Update One. Update One.